You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, do you get the feeling that sometimes we're the only two people in the world talking to each other about I, movies? We, we've spent uh, enough accumulated hours just sitting across this, this small table in our recording studio just talking to each other about movies that it's sometimes easy to forget that you know there are there's a whole other world of people that we could be talking to about this stuff (laughs) outside of the movie theater listeners we are going to be discussing the silent twins directed by agnieszka smoczynska which is coming out this upcoming weekend we're also going to be going through my watch list pick for this week we're going to be talking about tamara jenkins 2007 film the savages it's got laura lenny philip seymour hoffman what else could you want I mean, just to talk about movies with the only other person in the world, apparently. That's coming up on episode 349 of Seeing and Believing. Hello, June. Hello, Jennifer. I've recorded some questions here, and I've left enough space for you to answer. What do you think of your new school? Which do you like better, sunshine or rain? How was your day, girls? They spoke to me, and then it was just less and less, you know? If there's something you want to communicate, you best say it now. Jennifer, Joan, how would you describe your personalities? I think you might be a bad influence on each other. It might be an idea to split you up for a while. We will move the girls into special education. Why you want to say anything? We'll get them to talk yet. Guilty or not guilty? You need to take care of us. at least say something. Say it now. How do you plead? They shall be institutionalized indefinitely. Yes, we're here on episode 349 of Seeing and Believing. And Sarah, you and I, we've we've had our share of disagreements mm-hmm. on the show since you you joined uh, almost a year ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like to think that we have a, a collegial relationship. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of dysfunction eating away at the foundations of our of our friendship here. So I put the fun in dysfunctional. Oh, well, then maybe we should strap ourselves in for a little bit of entertainment because there is dysfunction with a capital D in this week's episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the watch list segment, we are going to be talking about Tamara Jenkins's The Savages, which uh, features a uh, brother and sister duo who are, you know, a little bit at each other's throats, uh, trying to work their way through a difficult situation. Uh, but for this first segment, we are going to be turning our attention to the new release, The Silent Twins. Mm-hmm. This is director Agnieszka Smoczynska's follow-up to her killer mermaid musical, The Lure. And she brings a similar unconventional spirit to this new film. The Silent Twins is based on the true story of June and Jennifer Gibbons, here played by Black Panther's Letitia Wright and Small Axe's Tamara Lawrence, who are twins who gathered notoriety for their habit of refusing to speak or even interact with anyone other than each other, and later on for their imaginative fiction and poetry. As the twins grow into adulthood, they have to contend with challenges thrown in their path from a world that doesn't care to understand their out-of-the-ordinary habits or their art. So, Sarah, I I did kind of nod earlier in that synopsis to Smoczynska's unconventional eye for for telling stories. uh, And we see that within the first few minutes Mm -hmm. of The Silent Twins, where the fourth wall is broken as the two child actors playing the main characters – 
uh, read aloud the uh, the credits to the audience, uh, accompanied by stop motion animation and bright colors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of a motif that Smachinska returns to over and over again over the course of the film, uh, kind of allowing the exuberance of these characters' imaginations to bleed out from the edges of the film and take the audience on a little bit of a stylistic journey. What I'm curious to know about to get us started for this conversation is uh, how did that strategy of Smachinska's work for you as she sought to tell the story of two very unconventional people? I think it worked the way it was intended to, which is that it kind of put me back on my heels a little bit. I wasn't really entirely sure what I was going to see next in any given scene, whether it was going to be entirely realistic or with flashes of the twins' creativity as they're interacting with each other. So like you'd mentioned, um, Smachinska does return to this stop motion motif. There's a couple of other instances where there's a flourish. You'll see a CGI flower blooming at a moment, for example. And I kind of wish that she had leaned into that a little bit more, gone a little bit more impressionistic. There's this contrast between the flourishes of imagination when nobody else is around and then this slightly more realistic but still dramatic depiction of their everyday life around everybody else that is incredibly drab. It's it's lit and tinted with a lot of very muted tones, which gets across the rainy weather in Wales in the 1970s and 80s. But I kept wanting the movie to return again and again to these imaginative sequences. And every time the movie did so, it did so in a way that I didn't fully expect. And it also started to do it less and less as the movie goes on. And I think that that has something to do with the plot and the development of these characters into adulthood. But at the same time, it felt like there was this thread of creativity that just came bursting out of the gate right at the very beginning that I don't think the movie ever really fully caught up with after those first few minutes. So I'm, I'm curious to know what the, your impressions were. So I, I agree with you that the, the beginning of the film really uh, dazzles or, or at least catches the, the audience off guard just in terms of how unconventional it is. And also the sheer, contrast between the opening scene where we see these these two little girls kind of holding a mock radio show mm-hmm. a mock radio interview with each other and it's lit in these very warm ambers and yellows um and they're so animated um there's some cross fading going on that smachinska throws in to kind of really just make them uh, really emphasize the closeness of these two girls to each other. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when somebody else enters the room, we you know, almost smash cut to cool blues. We see the girls only from a distance and from behind. Mm-hmm. And that visual strategy is certainly very effective to just really sort of almost give us whiplash. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very effective. I think that it meets with diminishing returns as the film goes on. And we can talk about maybe why why you think that is. My own theory is that it kind of feels like those smash cuts between the fantastical world of the Gibbons's imagination and the cold, hard realities of the real world. The editing strategy that Smachinska and her editor Agnieszka Glinska employ really it feels almost comedic to me and mm-hmm. unintentionally so. Which, and given the uh, the 
travails that these two sisters faced, um, sometimes really shockingly difficult ones, that really – it really unbalances the movie. And I I had a hard time with this one. I don't think it works very well. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is because those – the the hard contrast that the editing puts in between the fantastical world and the real world leads to some moments where it's playing tones that it doesn't quite intend to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that this is a difficult movie, but not in the way that it's in- intended to be. And I think part of it is the editing. I suspect that they're going for a hint of irony here, but like you'd said, it, it feels a little bit more comedic in tone than is probably intended. Um, I certainly found myself laughing out loud once or twice at moments that felt very darkly funny and then in retrospect not funny at all. Um, I don't know. I, I, I do think that there is... In places, there are some incredibly striking images, both in the real world and in the fantasy world that these two twins have constructed together that really did catch me off balance, but in the right way. I'm kind of disappointed that those moments caught me off balance very briefly and almost as an accident. Um, There are shots, there's a shot in a fantasy sequence where there is a man lying basically face down in a pool of Pepsi Cola in a very nice apartment. There's this other fantasy sequence where the twins are being rewarded and accoladed for their writing and their creative work. And then kind of a and one of those smash cuts back to cold, hard reality where it turns out that they're not going to be getting the attention and the praise that they clearly crave And I think that that cut did work for me, and some of those other fantasy images also work for me, partly because they're so striking, but I think the movie is trying a little bit too hard to explain itself to the audience and to explain these characters to the audience without ever actually bringing us inside June and Jennifer's heads. I still felt like I was at a remove from both of the characters, even during those fantasy sequences, because the fantasy sequences were mostly there just to explain how these two are feeling explicitly through dialogue. Um, And then to give you kind of that contrast to, well, this is what's actually happening in the real world. So in terms of this movie being a portrait of two characters, I think it sort of works from the outside, but it doesn't really work to explain how or why these two characters see the world in the way in which they do, because it never really gave me their interiority, if that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. And I think that's maybe the crux of of the issue with the film. And to be fair, this is something that I feel like we kind of touch on a lot on Seeing and Believing. And uh, in movies about artists, the challenge is always sort of depicting... Uh, creativity on screen in a way that doesn't either feel completely contrived and hokey or that just completely leaves that whole creative process inaccessible to the audience. Mm -hmm. And I think with this film, it's, I don't know, it's maybe a little bit of both. It's strange that this is a movie that takes such pains to try to depict the perspective of its two main characters and more than that, bring the audience into that perspective, you know, staging these elaborate musical sequences where we are seeing the world kind of as they're dreaming it. Mm-hmm. And 
And yet, for all the pains that it takes to bring us into that perspective, I felt as if June and Jennifer Gibbons were wholly inaccessible to me, both as uh, people, like just as as everyday people with uh, human emotions and, and <laughs> desires, mm-hmm. and also as artists. I don't feel like I understood uh, why uh, their reasons for behaving the way they did, the, their reasons for wanting the things they wanted. Mm-hmm. And I don't really under I didn't really understand the place from which their creativity sprang. We see them certainly doing a lot of writing and imagining these these fantastical scenes, but the the origin and the the full richness, I guess, of those creative visions just don't come across here for me at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a problem for a film that is uh, both a biopic and also a movie essentially about art. Yeah, yeah. It feels unfair to the subjects of the biopic because I felt like I was held at such a remove from them that I didn't understand why or how they're doing anything. And I, I suspect that the movie is trying to tell us that they got their inspiration from each other, only in each other's presence, because they felt so alienated from the rest of the of the town that they lived in. So for reference, June and Jennifer Gibbons were very real people who lived in a small village in Wales um, after their parents had emigrated there. And they were the only black family in their entire village at the time. Um, these two women spent years only speaking to each other. Um, I looked into it a little bit and they actually developed their own language that they would speak with each other, which I think is fascinating. And I'm kind of glad that the movie doesn't go quite so far to show them speaking to each other in their own made up language, because that would have been an additional level of alienation, probably. (laughs) Um, But the movie spends so much time on the fantasy sequence and then on the character's interacting with the other people around them and not really so much on the time that they spend with each other except as a means to an end to explain well how did they get this typewriter or like why were they inspired to I don't know create dolls or something and that sounds almost like I'm I'm dismissing these two lives and I really don't want to be doing that I just don't think that the movie does either of these real life women the justice that they deserve in getting at and understanding who they are, why they behaved and acted the way that they did. Um, It just it feels like they're also a mystery to the movie in a way that isn't like a let's sit back and contemplate this mystery. It's more of a here's a mystery. We've solved it, but we're not going to give you the keys to solve it either, if that makes sense. I mean, there's there's two kind of ways you can you can make a biopic. You can you can make it as sort of a, a psychological study, mm-hmm. or you can make it as sort of a, a a consideration of the irreducible complexity of a single individual and how that complexity can uh, offer various facets for interpretation. And I, I think this movie kind of doesn't do either of those things. It's strange that it it does really seem interested in in getting us into that into that sort of intimate communion with who these people were but i'm i'm not sure if it's just the techniques that smachinska is employing that are ineffective Mm. or if i'm simply 
just totally misapprehending what it's trying to do here because it, it's just I don't I don't know what this movie is about. I don't know hmm. what it's trying to say about these women. Is it what it what is it saying? I I, I don't I honestly don't know, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's just me being thick. Um, so I'm curious to know if did <laughs> did you have maybe you can take a stab at this. I mean, I was also left a little bit mystified too. I think that the movie is interested in the sense of alienation that these two women felt from the rest of the world around them, including their own family. And I think that it's about them finding some sort of solace in their own respective creative lives with each other and eventually alone as well. That doesn't really fully translate to the screen, though, because the movie is interested in showing both June and Jennifer kind of separate from everybody else just even in the frame like they're they're together constantly and they're often overlapping each other the blocking is so that they're standing so close that they're touching even when they're not actually physically touching um but that sense of alienation that the movie is communicating through its framing i feel like also serves to alienate the audience from the subjects of the camera at the same time. And so we're kind of left in a double bind because the movie keeps trying to show their creative endeavors as something that is very beautiful and intimate and strange and kind of incomprehensible all at the same time. And then it's also showing these two characters as being so desperately lonely that they really don't have anywhere to go but each other to the point that The rest of the world outside of them thinks that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. And the movie doesn't really try to answer that question either. And I I don't think that it would have been a good movie if it had tried to explain exactly how and why and what was going on precisely in June and Jennifer's brains. Like, I think that that would not have been very interesting either. But I also don't know how a movie in this particular style, in this particular method of storytelling can really get across that sense both of incredible intimacy and creative like understanding and then also alienation at the same time i i thought a a lot about uh tarsum sings the fall Hmm. while watching this because that is another uh it's it's not a movie about the artistic process per se but there is a lot of interest that the movie shows in how one person can be creating a story and um, another person can be a participant in that story simply by, by listening to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the visual invention in that film, I think carries it so far and also allows for some, some irony kind of in the same way that we see the contrast between uh, the Gibbons fantasies and their reality in, in the fall it's a, uh, disconnect between what the storyteller means and what the child listener interprets Mm -hmm. and that that kind of irony i think works to um enrich the film and also kind of say something about about storytelling that i kind of didn't find in this in this picture i and i i think i think that Part of it might be in the in the structure. Again, I'm coming back to the editing. I think because the the structure, it, it even though it does sort of let us into the fantasy as well as the reality, 
those two things are there, there's a hard boundary between them. There's mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of suggested by these smash cuts where we see a romantic interlude. One of them is imagining, you know, this romantic interlude with the scumbag boyfriend that she has. Mm -hmm. And then there's a a smash cut to, you know, him just, uh, being a, a pig essentially. Yeah. And, and that's kind of a moment that where it, it almost reads as comedic. Like it's, it's a gulf between what a character is is thinking about and what is actually going on that kind of gulf is a common comedic setup mm-hmm. um and it's so that's counterproductive but also just the the hardness of that cut rather than showing them bleeding into or melding into each other suggests that there's not really any intersection between what the girls are are creating and imagining mm-hmm. and the world around them mm-hmm. And maybe that's kind of an impoverished way to look at the creative process as there's cre- there's your dreams and then there's reality and there's just simply no way to marry them without just creating a lot of jagged edges. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, that that's that might just be me, but I, I feel like that is just a problematic thing that I can't get past with this film. I think that moment that you're alluding to there, I found impossibly sad and not really comedic at all. Like there's, there's some irony there, but. Oh, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's actually funny. I think it just, the the way the, the editing language, it, it feels like, it it feels like a comedic setup, even though Mm -hmm. it is deep, like the, the facts of the situation are deeply sad. Yeah. But the cinematic language makes kind of undermines that Hmm. in a way that I just I I I was like this I want to be sad about this but also it's ridiculous Mm -hmm. and I don't want to feel that these characters are ridiculous but I feel like the movie is implicitly telling me that in unintentionally through its employment of certain editing strategies yeah that makes sense and I think the the smash cut goes from a close-up on um, Jennifer's face to a farther away shot where you can see almost all of her all at once. And so I suspect that it's, again, trying to get at that sense of alienation and distance from the rest of the outside world. Like, she's so far deep in her own thoughts and dreams and joy that she can't really see what's going on around her for, for what it really is in that situation. I don't know. I I do think that the sequences where reality and fantasy do start to touch each other a little bit did work for me a little bit more. And I think that is part of the strength of the fall is that a lot of it has to do not so much with the creative process and with the act of telling a story, but with participating in a story and in interpreting that story. And I think when you engage with a piece of art, a movie, a book, a story that someone's telling, you bring a lot of yourself to that. And the way that you interpret it is going to be incumbent on a lot of things about who you are as as a person fundamentally. And I think the fundamental problem with the silent twins is that it doesn't trust the audience to be able to bring itself into these characters. Like this this mm. movie is not the, the quote-unquote empathy machine of Roger Ebert, I don't think. <laughs> I, I think that it is trying to tell the audience how to feel, but it's not doing it in a way that allows you to actually feel what's going on. You're just being told how that feeling should feel. And there are a few moments I do think where 
the movie does sort of succeed in spite of itself. So there's a another fantasy scene that is a lot more realistic, I think, than a lot of the other stop motion or CGI that you get earlier in the movie, where one of the twins is imagining the death of her sister. And the camera focuses in on a dark, low room filled with cots. And you realize that everybody on that cot is somebody who is dead. Like they're, they're laid out on their backs. They're covered by sheets. You can still see their faces. And they kind of look almost like they're sleeping. And the camera sort of dollies past them darker, deeper and deeper into the darkness. And the cots keep coming and the cots keep coming. And it almost feels like you're being put into this sort of fugue state almost. And then one of the bodies on one of the cots actually turns over as though she's sleeping. And that moment gave me chills because I think it was so understated and it wasn't trying to tell me exactly how to think or feel about this image. It was just giving me an arresting image that I suspect communicated quite a bit about how the sisters were feeling in which they probably wouldn't have been able to articulate that either. And that might be a, f a failing on the part of the script, but I'm not entirely sure. So let's talk about the the screenplay a little bit because I'm, I, as I was watching this film, it kind of felt to me like the film's attitude towards the twins was not even handed. Mm. It, it felt it felt to me as if uh, Leticia Wright's uh, June was um, almost like the not not the point of view character, but she it, it felt like the film's sympathies were almost more with her mm. than with Jennifer in that. June is the one who gets to enjoy the success. June is the one whose art we see the most of. Mm. Um, and when Jennifer's creativity is portrayed, it's often in situations like this romantic interlude with the scumbag boyfriend where she's kind of imagining something very romantic and poetic and takes kind of the form of a music video. Mm -hmm. um, but it it is often portrayed as just completely out of touch with the way things are. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm not sure if the overall gulf between how I experienced these two women was because of a way that the script was, was writing them. Like there was just an imbalance in the writing mm -hmm. or whether it's a difference of performance um, and the way these, these actors are giving their performances and how they've been directed to give their performances. I'm just, I again I'm I'm not sure if I'm just being an idiot or <laughs> or if I'm uh or if that's uh been your your experience as well. I I mean I don't think you're an idiot for one. Um I didn't quite get that same level of imbalance that you did. Um and I'm not entirely sure why that is. I I think that it could potentially be on a meta level June is still alive and Jennifer is not. And so June has the ability to tell this story more than Jennifer does. I don't know if that's exactly the, the right way to think about it, because fundamentally, like the movie is the movie and real life is real life. But I don't know. It, it feels like I was probably the, the same level of disconnected from each of them, to be perfectly honest. So... I didn't really feel that same level of imbalance. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to know, like, did you feel yourself pitying June or rooting for June more than for Jennifer? Or was it was it something else? It, it more felt like Jennifer was 
mostly an object of pity, mm. whereas June was a more complex figure. Mm. Like we we the the emotions I felt that the film was inviting me to have about each of the women were not equal in terms of just the complexity. Mm. Um and that again just it, it felt I don't know a better way to put this. It felt disrespectful to me. It, it felt as if the film was according June respect that Jennifer simply wasn't wasn't also afforded. And part of that may be because you know here in the present day, uh, only June is is currently still living. Mm -hmm. So that might be part of it. Is just uh, Jennifer is not really around to give kind of a firsthand. Uh, account of herself mm -hmm. um she's not still making art um but it it simply felt to me like the movie was either more interested in june than it was in jennifer or it simply didn't have uh an interesting take on on jennifer that felt distinct from her that gave her her own identity apart from uh the duo whereas june felt like she kind of did get that a little bit more. Okay, I, th I think I can see that. Yeah, because for most of the movie, I was thinking of these two as almost a single unit. Like, they go everywhere, they're presented everywhere at the same time. It feels like their collective triumphs up to a certain point are, are for both of them and not just for one versus the other. And there are moments of division. Like, they're they're not a unified front all the time. But... It really didn't feel to me like the movie knew how to treat each of these characters as their own woman. I think it really only knew that they were together for so long and they really only interacted with each other for so long that nobody else knew how to interact with them as their own individual people either. So still not quite getting that same imbalance, but I, I think I get where you're coming from. Yeah, I, I, and I think maybe this is kind of just where I, I end up with the film in general is that, again, I just don't know. I don't feel like I know these. I, I've watched an entire film about these women, and I feel like I don't understand them any better than I did before, you know, at, at the very start of the film, before having even seen it. And that just feels like a missed opportunity mm -hmm. um, and uh, just a, a sad flaw in, in what could have been a very, very interesting story. Yeah, I feel like if you're watching a movie and you want to pause and fact check it every 15 minutes, that's probably not a good sign. Mm, probably not a good sign indeed. <laughs> Listeners, that is our review of the new Silent Twins. It is out this weekend in theaters. If you have a chance to, to see it, it's a little bit of a smaller film, but it might uh, lead to some interesting conversations. So we'd be interested in your thoughts on its function as a biopic, as a movie about art, maybe as a movie just about uh, seeing others with compassion. If you have any thoughts to share on that, you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod. We are going to be sharing one really interesting Twitter conversation that we had earlier about the rings of power here coming up in a second. Don't go anywhere. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. I'm really eager to dive into uh, the conversation this week, Sarah, because, you know, we talked about The Rings of Power last week, and 
it's safe to say you and I we we kind of like Tolkien, you know. We Just we know we know a little bit about him. Um, so of course, any conversation that was spurred by last week's episode is going to be something that I'm really interested in. So I can't wait to to get into that, but I am going to wait a little bit because I do want to just drop really quick a plug for our Patreon. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously one thing that helps us keep the show going is just hearing from everyone out there and just talking about movies because that's what we love. Um, but another way that you can support us is through your hard-earned dollars. If you go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast, you can pledge at various levels and that you can get the reward of knowing that you are supporting something that you love. You also get some other rewards in there too. There's some perks. Uh, one of the more popular perks that we have is the uh, $10 a month level where you can uh, not only get a personalized recommendation list from Sarah and me, but also the opportunity to dictate one movie per year that we have to review on air and uh, we can't say no. So that's a pretty good perk. Uh, we've already had quite a few people take advantage of, of that reward, and I think it's led to some really good conversations. So not only do you support us monetarily and get some good uh, perks for yourself out of it, but you also give us the gift of watching a movie that we may not necessarily have seen before Mm -hmm. and uh, just getting a great conversation out of it on the show. Love to do it. That tier is also called the Offer You Can't Refuse tier, which I very much appreciate. It's good naming right there. I I have to say, so I was in charge of of writing all the copy for that Patreon page, and I was very proud of the the names that we came up with for for the different reward tiers. So, So even if you aren't planning on on, on pledging to us, maybe just pop on over there, take a look at the handiwork. There's also a video that Wade made once upon a time, so uh, starting his burgeoning director career. It's a good time. You can also uh, get in touch with us about how much you like Kevin's copy uh, by tweeting at us or by sending us an email. So, Kevin, as you mentioned, we talked at length about Lord of the Rings last week. And we're going to talk about it at more length in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, which I'm pretty pretty delighted about. So so we heard from Seth Tihani over on Twitter, um, who said that he was listening to the show while he was tweeting feedback at us, which I appreciate. It feels like it's kind of, you know, another conversation in a fourth dimension, probably the dimension of writing. So Seth mentioned, I'm at the point right now where Kevin is complaining that Elrond's visit to Moria is just there to show him getting business done. But honestly, that whole thing with Elrond and Durin and Disa was my favorite part of episode two and the most interesting. And then he went on to say it was an episode about the differences between races and the way they perceive things and each other. Elrond's realization of how the way elves age affects exterior relationships was nice and reminded him of a currently running manga. And then he went on to talk about the existing manga called Freyren, which if people want to check that out, they can do that and join that conversation as well. But it also kind of put me in mind of this idea of differences in perception of, of different adaptations and how we all see those things very differently, even if we may be coming to them from very similar backgrounds. So um, I don't know, like, I really liked that moment between Elrond and Durin and and the fact that Durin is upset because it's been 20 years, which to Elrond is kind of a blink of an eye. I just wish that that moment in the episode hadn't taken also a blink of an eye. Like, it it felt (laughs) very brief to me. And I would have loved to spend a little bit more time on it, maybe throughout the entire episode. So 
I, I, do, I can't remember if we actually got into this on last week's episode, but the, the thing that I'm most interested by with this new adaptation, and I think has a lot of potential uh, so far, is exploring that idea of um, of how immortality can just the, the way that being immortal shapes not just the way you you live, mm-hmm. but also just your entire your experience of reality itself. Um, that's something that you know is is coming up time and again in Tolkien's work. The Jackson films kind of really only had that one scene in the Two Towers where Arwen sort of you know sees her future if she chooses to stay with Aragorn, how he will age and die, and she will not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really the only part of the Jackson films that really dealt with the gulf between mortals and immortals living side by side and how that could lead to a lot of pain and heartache. Mm-hmm. So I'm really heartened by the fact that the rings of power at least seems interested in kind of poking at that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I disagree with Seth that it was compellingly poked at in, in that second episode <laughs> with Elrond and Durin, but I, you know, I will say it is, it is interesting and if they continue pulling on that thread, it could possibly be the best thing about the show. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, it is a show with a very large cast and a very large geography, and they got places to go and things to see. So I am glad that that thread was poked at. I'm really hoping that we get a little bit more of that thread and then a little bit more about just the differences between mortals and the elves and everybody else, because it feels like there's room for that to potentially breathe if they give it that space, if that makes sense. I mean, if they, if they give it the space that it needs is sort of the, the operative question, mm-hmm. I guess we'll find out in the, in the weeks ahead. I know you've seen episode three, which you've, you've said you're I cautiously uh, positive on. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't gotten a chance to catch up with it yet. I do plan on it though. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, the trajectory will continue going up as as the series progresses. There's some cool stuff with Numenor in episode three, which is all I'm going to say about it. But I, I really liked the way that it looked. I liked some of the threads that they're starting to tug on there, too. So it may just be that this is a show where it's going to take me four or five episodes to get really, really into it. And then maybe I'll get really into it. I just came down real hard because... I don't know. I love the Silmarillion, it's, man. It's, it's that nerd rage. You, if When you're a nerd, you can try to tamp it down, but sometimes it wins. I totally get it. Uh, <laughs> listeners, at the risk of making this a podcast solely about the rings of power, we are still very interested uh, in any of your thoughts out there because uh, we know that lots of you have seen it. And uh, obviously, Sarah and I just love talking about it week in and week out. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you have thoughts about it, you know, it's not too late to to chime in over on Twitter or, or via email. Uh, either of those ways, we are happy to keep talking about uh, this universe that we love and continue to tease out some of the complexities in the show. Uh, so yeah, uh, thanks for writing in, uh, Seth, even though I disagree with you a lot, it's always good to have conversations about these things with you and with all of our listeners out there. John, it's me. Dad is losing his mind or something. I got a phone call. There's something wrong with him. This is a crisis. I don't think this actually qualifies as a crisis. It's an alarm. You mean it's, it's like we're in orange. Exactly. But we're in yellow. Okay. So we should just... Be aware and be cautious. When it hits red, then we're in trouble. 
So now we're going to go to the watch list, which, Kevin, as you know, every week is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen, and we go and we watch it, and then we come back and we discuss it. So this week, you selected Tamara Jenkins's The Savages, which came out in 2007. So when the longtime girlfriend of elderly Lenny Savage, played by Philip Bosco, dies, Lenny's children, John, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Wendy, played by Laura Linney, suddenly find themselves responsible for their father's well-being. This proves doubly challenging, as their father had been estranged from them for about 20 years and is now rapidly beginning to succumb to dementia. John and Wendy must now pick apart the walls they've built in response to the way that their father treated them growing up, dealing with their own shame, anger, and even guilt as they navigate the challenge of caring for a man who never really did a good job of caring for them in the first place. So that sounds extremely cheery. <laughs> and <laughs> Kevin, I'm, I'm curious to know, um, one, why you picked this movie. I'm assuming that there's a little bit of a link with difficult families and, and illness between this and the silent twins, which we just, just discussed. Um, but I'm curious to know if there are any grace notes that you find in this movie, because this, this does feel very heavy and I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I'm, I'm curious to know what, what it is that you like about it. Yeah. So, um, I, I think there's, there's a couple things there. I mean, there's a lot of things I like about it, obviously, cause I picked it, but, mm -hmm. um, I, the thing that made me consider it as a link with the silent twins was sort of the, the idea of, of difficult relationships with family and specifically the often fraught relationships between siblings. Mm. Um, there are a lot of movies that are about dementia and the pain of watching uh, a loved one slip away. And a lot of those movies often take the form of, you know, one spouse watching uh, the other spouse uh, slip away, or uh, in the in the case of something like Still Alice with Julianne Moore, you know the the experience of losing yourself a little bit during that process. Mm -hmm. But what I liked about the Savages is that it's it is about dementia, but it's more about the relationship between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Laura Linney's siblings, mm -hmm. and how they have to confront certain things about themselves and about their relationship uh, in response to a difficult health situation that doesn't affect them directly. Mm. Um, I thought that was interesting. And that's kind of why I thought about pairing it with uh, the silent twins, which is you know, obviously about, about sisters. I think that in answer to your second question about grace notes, the, this film walks a pretty difficult tightrope of being about a very heavy subject, but also um, having a sense of humor about it. And mm -hmm. I think this is something that Tamara Jenkins is pretty good at as a writer and director um, is kind of taking these um, taking subject matter and taking characters that are kind of spiky and finding ways to um, allow them to be themselves and, and not to sand down those edges while also recognizing, while also finding the deep reservoirs of emotion that can underlie even the the spikiest exteriors, mm. and I think she succeeds with with this film with the the touches of humor where it is sad that as uh, these two characters have to you know find a a nursing home for their father and put him away and kind of deal with their complicated feelings about the fact that they are the caregivers for a man who never really cared for them. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's that's difficult. It's also she, Jenkins finds kind of these these moments of mordant humor in it that uh, leaven the whole thing and lighten it, and also permit it to have an ending that is not just about the the darkness and the the pain mm. that that accompanies these uh these sorts of situations but also finds uh, a way to say that life does go on without it feeling quite so trite as that phrase might suggest mm, mm-hmm. um so that that would be kind of the cliff's notes version of that there's more we can t- say about that but i am curious to know if that uh is a convincing explanation for you yeah yeah i think it is um i do think that this movie is very good and very well balanced I don't know that it's ever going to be a a favorite of mine necessarily. And I think part of that is I'm not entirely sure if the movie is holding me at arm's length or if I am the one holding the movie at Mm. arm's length. Um, And this gets a little bit into the fact that I have had a family member who has dealt with dementia. So this is something that I'm very much aware of. Definitely not the same family circumstances. And also that story is not mine to tell. So it's not one that I'm not going to tell here. But it is something that I have experience with, and, and it's not fun. So stories like this, I think I have a difficult time with just because they do hit so close to home. And at the same time, like I mentioned, like I do still feel like the sense of humor is just dry enough that I feel like a lot of the jokes are being told from a reserve. They're They're very almost deadpan there's a moment where philip seymour hoffman um as john asks his little sister like did you steal painkillers from a dead woman which like that line alone out of everything else just does not sound very funny but in the moment it's really genuinely hilarious and i think a lot of it has to do with the way that philip seymour hoffman kind of holds himself and the way that he delivers that line it's almost a rapid fire like did you actually do what i think you just did And then the punchline to the joke is that he actually accepts the painkiller that his sister is offering him that she had pilfered from her father's dead girlfriend's medicine cabinet. And that's such a specific thing that I can't imagine that not having happened to somebody at some point down the line. So I feel a kinship with these characters, even as at the same time, I'm not sure that I really feel a sense of warmth necessarily. And it it may be that they're the ones who have the walls up in between them as a defense mechanism. Maybe it's my own defense mechanisms in dealing with a story like this, potentially. I'm just I'm just not entirely sure. So do you feel kind of a kinship with these characters or is it just that you enjoy spending time with them? I mean, I hope that I don't feel like the I hope I don't feel a kinship with these characters <laughs> because they are they're not exactly the most pleasant people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is something that we also saw in Jenkins's uh, film *Private Life*, which was uh, came out on Netflix a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, where her, she tends to present us with uh, characters who are who are very you know they're urbanites, they're very intellectual, um, they often live in New York, um, they they have difficulty uh, being vulnerable emotionally mm-hmm. with each other, um, and. In the case of the savages, both Wendy and John are the, the you know they they obviously have complicated relationships with their father. They also just kind of have difficulty 
experiencing emotion without intellectualizing it to themselves. Mm. And I think that might be what I find relatable about them is that it is much easier to sort of use therapy speak to talk yourself out of feeling something honestly. Hmm. And I think that that's something that this film is very perceptive about that. These two characters are going through a very extreme time, um, not just with their father, but they're, you know, they're both staring down middle age. Um, They're both experiencing romantic disappointments. Um, They're both kind of struggling to make it in very, difficult professional fields um they're they're both writers they're both uh drama people Mm -hmm. um and that has also put a lot of stress on them and has also kind of led them to view their own lives almost like a like a story or a play that they kind of are trying to both analyze and live at the same time Mm -hmm. uh linney's wendy at various points um you know she's she's having an affair with a married man and she often stops their trysts halfway through to say like, I can't do this. This feels like a cliche, Mm. which is such a, it's such a, a funny and strange thing to say in, in the midst of a romantic moment, but it also feels like that's exactly like that is, that feels very true to life for a certain kind of person. Mm -hmm. And I found it very engaging to watch that pattern of behavior kind of unfold itself. It, it's a little bit like in a, in a Wes Anderson film, uh, we see that a lot too, where there are these characters who kind of, there is sort of a dryness to an Anderson film where, and there's an artifice to it that at first seems to keep you at arm's length. But as the film goes on, you find these little touches in the performances and in the writing that really open up the, the uh, again using this phrase the reservoirs of emotion underneath all that hmm. surface business and i think while the savages is working in a much different register from from anderson mm-hmm. i think the same kind of principle is still applying in in the way it's telling its story i think that explains a little bit about like my own emotional disconnect from this movie then i think because i don't really connect with wes anderson in the same way that other people seem to do but that makes sense and what I really do like about this story is kind of the the looseness, but not the shagginess of the script. It's a very smart script because it knows what details to give and then what to just leave unsaid. Um, and again, it's also very funny. And I appreciate that Tamara Jenkins is able to give both of these characters these kind of like introspective self-intellectualizing lines about themselves where you can tell they've been thinking this about themselves for a really long time and they're just really trying to process through it like there's there is a moment where wendy asks another character like does this all just sound like middle class whining to you (laughs) and i think that level of self-awareness on tamara jenkins's part And then also that level of not really self-awareness on Wendy's part is just the right register of irony, especially because you can tell that Wendy is genuinely distraught by this question. She hasn't figured out the way out to the end of it yet. So she's still stuck muddling through in this situation and in this world where she doesn't feel like she has everything together. She doesn't have everything quite right. And the only person that she can turn to in this particular situation is either someone who works at the nursing home or her brother, whom she is not particularly close with either. 
I don't know. Like, okay, I think I might be selling myself on this movie a little <laughs> bit more. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm that, that's kind of what the watch list is for in, in a lot of ways. Um, I think that the performances do a lot to elevate the material as well. I could definitely see lesser performers. I, I, I just, I love Laura Linney, and of course, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. And I think they're able to take this material which could kind of it would be easy to play these characters as types like oh you know the like the 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 new yorker who's just sort of obsessed with not looking privileged when they really are kind of privileged and uh and and that's just you know ever since woody allen started making movies that that's just sort of been a type that we're used to in cinema mm-hmm. and yet in the hands of Hoffman and Linney, they do feel very fresh. I, I love Hoffman's line readings in this film where he, he really doesn't overplay anything. Mm-hmm. He kind of, he speaks in this very level voice. He doesn't um, allow himself to be too emotive all that often. Mm-hmm. So that means that the scenes where he does let his anger or his sadness get the better of him, like, really the contrast is is incredible Mm -hmm. but it also does so much to build the character of this older brother who is sort of used to just being putting on this ultra pragmatic facade as a both as a way to sort of manage everyone around him but also to manage his own emotional difficulties yeah i i i think it's it's just a really savvy bit of performance ship and i think lenny does something similar uh even though she's more demonstrative with wendy's neuroses like the she doesn't overplay it into being kind of just this mess you just she's she's done she's playing somebody who is a mess but she's not playing her as a caricature which i really appreciated yeah i appreciate that too and i appreciate the way that Laura Linney and Philip Seymour Hoffman bounce off each other, but I also appreciate that the script is willing to throw other characters into these two's orbit and let you see different sides and facets of them. I'm thinking particularly of one of the RNs at the nursing home. His name's Jimmy. His name's Jimmy, and he is played by Gabenga Akinagbe. And he and Laura Linney kind of have this very different rapport from her and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Both of the men are very like even keeled, but Jimmy is much more easygoing, I think, than John is. And there's a moment late in the film where Jimmy and Wendy go outside and have a smoke in his car because she clearly needs the outlet and and he's being kind to her. He knows her father. He knows what her father likes. And I think it helps that Jimmy knows the difficulties of dealing with Wendy's father, but also doesn't have a lot of that emotional baggage. So he's able to care for this person in a way that Wendy feels that she is completely insufficient to. And in doing so, he's able to say, hey, this guy, he likes tater tots. Like, bring him some tater tots the next time you come and visit. Like, there's there are these small, lovely grace notes where the movie recognizes just how difficult it is to deal with the father in all of these situations, both before and after the dementia. But then it also recognizes that he's still a human being who is deserving of that worth and dignity. And I really love that the script gives that worth and dignity to everybody else within the orbit of these characters too. Yeah. The, the, the theme, I guess, of caring for others is, is maybe what sets this 
apart from on one hand kind of this miserablest story about dementia where it's it's kind of just it's going to make you feel bad and mm-hmm. that's sort of the point um or uh kind of this very trite story about you know two children learning to love their father as, as he slips away like there there's um again there there's a spikiness to it but the at the end of the movie it becomes very clear that this is a story about how these characters kind of have to learn to care for for people in the way that they need to be cared for mm-hmm. um the the final shot and i'm i'm i go back and forth on on the final moments where um uh you know at the end of the film their, their father has passed away mm-hmm. and uh they're kind of like trying to get their you know move on with their lives at in in the wake of that and uh wendy ends up with this this old dog uh the man she's been been having an affair with was just going to didn't just didn't want to deal with the difficulties of uh giving this dog hip surgery and the physical therapy so they're just going to put the put the dog down Mm -hmm. and wendy instead uh asks him can will you just give him to me and i'll take care of him and the last shot we see uh her on a walk with this dog he's kind of in one of those dog wheelchairs and that's sort of where it ends and it's interesting it i can see a reading where it's it it seems a little bit trite to sort of draw a parallel between caring for one's ailing parent Mm -hmm. versus caring for an animal Mm -hmm. on the other hand it seems like that's a nice resolution to her character arc where she is kind of learning to sacrifice for for something other than herself mm-hmm. uh, other than her own career um and that's been the tension she's been dealing with through the entire film is she doesn't want to she she doesn't want to and is not able to care for her father and that's why he goes into the nursing home but she's racked with guilt throughout the entire film about taking that step mm-hmm. and i think the the final moments of the film provide a nice resolution to that without again becoming super mawkish about it yeah it's not maudlin which i appreciated i almost want to contrast it a little bit because for me that shot doesn't say she's giving something up in order to care for something else it's that she's willing to work at something that's difficult and continue working at it Hmm. if that makes sense so yes she is caring for this animal that nobody else was willing or his original family wasn't willing to care for but it also feels like an act of almost defiance against against the process of aging because the dog is also very old And I think that this is, it's a little bit of character development for her, but it's also just her learning to exist in a world and not necessarily just just give up and say, I'm going to accept things the way that they are. I'm going to continue to to care for something else in defiance of that process, if Hmm. that makes sense. It feels very hopeful to me, is is kind of what I'm trying to say. It's, it's, and I think that's kind of why I, I like that so much, is it finds a note of hope to to give us that doesn't f- that feels like it takes into account just it's very hard to to watch this happen to to somebody to a family member even if you weren't that close to that family member mm-hmm. but on you know there is at, you know, at the risk of of saying cliche you know life does go on and there is there is hope and dignity in learning to kind of move on and 
continue working at something that's difficult. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's kind of, again, Jenkins is very good at walking that tightrope where it is, it's hopeful, but it's not uh, saccharine. Mm -hmm. um, the film is funny, but it's not uh, disrespectful of, of the situation. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, uh, you know, appropriately emotional, but it also, it doesn't just, <laughs> it doesn't just completely beat you into a pulp with, with the gravity of its situation. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's saying life goes on. And so we can forget about death. I think it's saying that there is this, this, situation like death comes for us all essentially and so what are you going to do in the face of that there's a shot near the end where everybody's in the car together and the children are fighting and their father is looking out of the window he's turned off his hearing aids so that he can't hear them arguing you can sort of hear it as a low buzz in the background and he's looking out the window at these kind of wintry trees there's no leaves on them and the camera very slowly pans down and you can see that these are trees that are in a cemetery and i think that that acknowledgement of life goes on and also there's this thing that's going to be you know at the end of every single human life so what are you going to do in the face of that i thought that was just a, a wonderfully smart shot to put at the end of the movie that doesn't feel like it's saying oh but we're going to be happy about this now because everything is resolved you know like it, it feels complicated and complex even though it's a very simple and elegant shot at the same time yeah i uh i i agree i don't really have uh anything to i think that's a really good way to sum up the film as a whole is just it, it is it's a modest film mm -hmm. um in and i think when when i was thinking about what to pick for the watch list i was like ah, do i want to pick the savages it's not like it's not like a capital g great film mm. but i think it, in its modest aims it does uh succeed very elegantly at, at certain things and in some ways that's better than a f that's more appropriate i guess than a film that is is trying to make uh some sort of grandiose sort of statement about life and death agreed dignity and modesty i think dignity and modesty that's a good place to put it listeners that's our review of the savages uh for our watch list segment uh sarah next week we are going to be tackling a another difficult subject <laughs> uh it's not difficult necessarily because of what's in the movie but what's been going on around the movie we are going to be talking about don't worry darling on next week's episode yeah i think the press cycle really kicked into high gear right around the same time that our bonus episode about the fall and winter preview came out uh -huh. which was <laughs> an episode in which i included don't worry darling on my list of top five movies i was looking forward to and I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm a little bit uh, apprehensive about where this movie is going to go, but I think it'll be an interesting conversation, like meta issues or no around it. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave the, the tabloid buzz to the side for our discussion of that film. There will hopefully be quite a lot to talk about with oh, yeah. it. And I'm certain that we're going to have a lot to talk about with next week's watch list segment, which is another one of these that uh, neither of us has seen. You, it was your pick, but... This is going to be a new one to both of us. Yes, yes. So we are going to be watching Michael Mann's Last of the Mohicans, and there is no connection between this and Don't Worry Darling as far as I can tell, although I'm sure I'll be able to pick something galaxy-brained out 
after I've seen both of these movies. Um, it just happens to be the 30th anniversary of Last of the Mohicans coming out next week. So we're going to talk about it. Yeah, it's it's a gap in my Michael Mann knowledge as well, and I'm looking forward to filling that in. Uh, listeners, if you want to watch along with us for the watch list, Last of the Mohicans is uh, streaming on demand on most major streaming platforms such as Amazon Prime and uh, you know the, the iTunes Store, like pretty much anywhere you can uh, stream things on demand, rent them. Uh, you can find it there. So definitely, if you feel like watching along with us, we'd love to We'd love to have you along on the watch list. Uh, but that does it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.